Well, I hope the, the book of Revelation to you is like the letter we received from our son this week. It was written to all of us, and the letter was left out for about a day and a half, so everybody made their turns coming into the room and picking it up and reading its contents and then delighting when they saw their name mentioned in it because Josh made sure to re- reference all the family and, you know, what did he say here and there, and it was a very encouraging letter. So my question to you, and by the way, the introduction is going to be a long part of the sermon this morning, just to make sure we stay on track. Have you been encouraged yet by the book of Revelation? You've been encouraged. Have you, in a sense, found yourself mentioned here in a letter, picking it up, reading it, looking at its contents? Now, there were some misspellings. They're getting about... In Josh's letter, they're getting about four hours of sleep a night, and then sometimes they have to stand watch for four hours at a time, and he's got a lot of time to think, so when he goes down on Sunday to write letters to us, some words are misspelled. We don't try to, we don't try to seek um, special meaning in those misspelled words. We're not trying to find symbolism. He's tired, he misspelled a word, and we still receive comfort from it. We might have to get two people saying, what do you think he's saying here? Right? And, and then we like, lean, oh, that, okay, yeah, that makes sense in light of the context of that sentence and Josh's personality. So I hope Revelation has been like that to you. I want us, and I want to shepherd lead us to avoid the very thing the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 1 that we are not to teach any different doctrine. He doesn't say false doctrine. He says different, heterodox doctrine. That word heterodox is actually in that Greek word. So it's something different than the main point. Not necessarily false, but it's a distraction to the main point. Not to teach any different doctrine. Not necessarily false, but not helpful. Then Paul goes on that we don't devote ourselves to myths, in endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That the aim of our charge or the aim of our studying this book together or the minor prophets or the five solas is love that issues, listen to what Paul says, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That we be careful we are not persons who by swerving from these, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere, sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion, making confident assertions. That's Paul's warning to Timothy. As Timothy stays in Ephesus, a very difficult church at that point for a fruitful ministry. So consider this a hermeneutical briefing. Hermeneutical is simply the science or the study of interpretation to make sure that we stay on spot. And especially in Revelation, this is important because where other men have been very careful interpreters with the other 65 books of the Bible, they trip up and wander off in Revelation. So, a lot of Christians have been taught that biblical prophecy and apocalyptic literature, that's the Greek word apocalypsis, which the book of Revelation is titled after, that biblical prophecy and apocalypsis is simply about foretelling the future. Now, all prophecy has an element of foretelling. 
But it's not about piecing together details to form an exact timeline. Prophetic books are just as concerned, and maybe more so, with the present-day moral character of people in the light of God's greatest anticipation of prophetic apocalyptic material, which is what? That's a big sentence. What is the greatest anticipation of all prophecy and the apocalypsis revelation? What is the greatest anticipation? The glorious, majestic return and splendor of Jesus Christ. And if we ever get bogged down and we're making confident assertions over here, but we're missing that glory, that splendor, then we have missed the point of biblical prophecy. Here's a question. Don't answer out loud. How would you explain what a train, a locomotive, is like to people living in 3600 B.C.? Before the wheel was ever invented and when the fastest mode of transportation on land was a horse. What words would you use? Think about that. How would you sit there? You'll never have this opportunity, of course. Time. Time is an incredible barrier. Uh, but how would you explain a locomotive to people living in 3600 B.C.? Mechanical snake. No, the term mechanical didn't come about for another 2,225 years. Iron caterpillar. No, even though iron has been an essential element of the earth ever since it was created, humans did not begin producing iron into usable implements until about 2000 B.C. So you see, no matter what terms you would use, literal terms, metaphor, they could all be used, both literal and metaphor, to be twisted to actually come out to something totally other than what you're trying to explain. Does that make sense? So what, what they might hear after your explanation of what a locomotive is, they might hear a monster centipede. Right, racing across the land, it devours people because you can see into the belly of this monster and people are just sitting there passive. And every once in a while, one of the humans goes to the back and they disappear. And it's so angry, smoke billows out of its head. Right? Or a comet that runs along the earth smoothly, burning up as it moves. And the greatest thing about this comet is that people can ride it. Would those be wrong interpretations of what you're trying to communicate? Yes. Can you understand how they got that? Yes. So especially as we move into the book of Revelation, where heavy use of metaphor is used. A dragon trying to devour a woman with child. We have to be very careful that we are not making confident conclusions where the Scripture doesn't allow us to. Where the Scripture defines it and explains it, absolutely, yes. That is given to us and to our children for His glory. So here's my point. Complete consensus among all Christians about details and images and timing is not a valid goal when considering the book of Revelation. Here is what is a valid goal. How can our knowledge of the end times reveal more of the splendor and majesty of Jesus and the wonder of His gospel to believers and unbelievers right now? Now, did that happen in the last seven days? 
because we're studying this together. Because if that's not happening, if revelation doesn't cause us to love God more and to love our neighbor as ourself, then our journey has been more like a weekend at Disney rather than an equipping for the saints for the work of the ministry. So I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to come back to the book of Revelation and allow curiosity to help us explore these things, but we have to get deeper than curiosity and arguments about details. God's purpose is found in Revelation 1-3. Please turn there. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. We are only three verses into the final book of Scripture, and God's Word says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. And here's the interpretive key. Who keep what is written in it. So revelation is to be obeyed. It's to be kept. And here's the motivational purpose for the time is near. Keep it, for the time is near. Now, whether we read chapter 1, 5, 7, 22, we must ask what God intends for us to learn and obey from this passage. This morning, that will be the latter part, for the most part, of Revelation chapter 7. So, what truths are found in Revelation 7 this morning that we need to think deeply about? That's a great question. What is in Revelation 7 that should shape my desires this week? What is there that I am supposed to obey in the power of the Holy Spirit? Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. So here's some specific questions as we move to Revelation 7. Has our study and meditation of this book, a book we have been studying together since June with that sort of five-series interlude on the five solas, has our study of the book of Revelation caused us to love God more? Has it caused us to love our neighbors more? By the way, he's your neighbor. She's your neighbor. Out there, we call that a neighborhood. They're your neighbor's. Has our study of Revelation together caused us to love our neighbors more? Has it caused husbands to love their wives more? You know, Revelation can do that. Has it caused our children to love God and others more? Even those who are different from us, different language, culture, color, life, interests, because Revelation speaks on several occasions about every nation, tribe, peoples, and languages. Has Revelation caused us to love others more? Has it caused our young ladies and our young men to rest in God's loving and sovereign plan for their life? Because God's sovereignty and his plan is all over the book of Revelation. Because from chapter 4 on, I believe it's talking about future things. And he has a plan. So we've covered six of the seven seals. The seventh seal begins in 8.1. Adam read that for us this morning. We're in the, we're in the latter part of the of the sixth seal, 
And there is an interlude. Chapter 7 is an interlude. So chapter 6 was the sixth seal. Chapter 8 begins the seventh seal. So all of chapter 7 is an interlude. Why? Why would there be this sort of snapshot that's not necessarily connected to the sixth or the seventh seal? Why an entire chapter of interlude? Here's why. It provides you and me a snapshot of what's going on in heaven that we wouldn't otherwise have. And to a suffering church like the church in Smyrna, and the suffering church, like some of the churches in Ethiopia, that is an incredible encouragement. It stresses the sovereign control of God. It also answers the question that we considered last week at the end of chapter 6, at the end of this horrifying vision where unbelieving earth dwellers are running and calling for the rocks to hide on them, and they cry out, who can stand? And this interlude tells you there will be people standing and worshiping in the very presence of God rather than running from his presence. Because that's what sin does, folks. Sin causes us to hide from God. Go all the way back into Genesis 3. And, and everything was normal. In the cool of the day, God came to walk with his two children. But there was something abnormal that day. And they ran and they tried to hide themselves in the trees. And folks, it's very, very important for us to know this. Creation cannot hide you from the creator. They hid in the trees, but they were seen by God. These people at the end of the sixth seal are crying out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. But creation cannot hide you from the creator. Who can stand? And even though sin separates us, causes us to hide from the presence of God, what you're going to see in chapter 7 is people in the very presence of God standing with great joy and worshiping Him. And that's good news. In verses 1 to 3, turn to Revelation chapter 7. Verses 1 to 3, John saw four angels holding back destruction. Then John sees another angel with the living seal of God rising from the east and calling out to the other four angels. Look at verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Suspense is now built and the great tribulation is imminent. It is delayed by God's grace, but it's about to happen. Then in verses 4 to 8, John hears a number. Remember, he's going to see a multitude, but he hears a number of those sealed. And that number is 144,000. John indicates then that 12,000 will come from each tribe. You can just look through that. The words from the tribe are used 12 times. So, Revelation, as we move from the first section of chapter 7 to the second section of chapter 7, Revelation, for some reason, is explicitly contrasting the second multitude with the first one. John heard the first number. He sees the second group. By the way, the, remember in chapter five or chapter 4 and 5, at the end, he hears about a lion of the tribe of Judah, but he turns around and he sees what? He sees a lamb. Same person through a different lens. Same Messiah, one from the, as a lion, one as a lamb, simply different perspective. 
John heard the first number and sees the second group. The first was numbered and the second no one could count. The first is Jewish and the second from every nation. That's what original readers of John's letter would have understood. These two groups look different. Now remember who's reading this. Who's reading this? Then, when, when John receives it, on the island, the salt mines in the Mediterranean Sea, he, he writes these things and he delivers it to who? Seven, seven churches. These churches are suffering. These churches are small. These churches live in the shadow of emperor worship. The number 144,000 would have sounded like a very large number to a suffering church. But no, this is a particular group. Look down at chapter 7, verse 14. This isn't referring to all believers of all time. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So if the 144,000 seem like a large number, especially if that is referring to the complete number of martyrs of chapter 6, verse 11, whether it is or isn't, that would have sounded like a large number. What about when John turns to see a multitude that no one can count? What kind of encouragement would that have provided to a man held as a prisoner on an island for the sake of his testimony and the word of God when he sees that picture? And what about you? When you are here and you see mostly this horizontal view and you see evil people getting away with evil and kidnappers getting away with their kidnapping and predators getting away with their predatorial behavior and dictators living long, long lives and continuing to oppress the people under their rule. What does that kind of a vision do to you? A future vision of a multitude where nobody can number them and they are in the presence of God. And what's going to be very encouraging is what they sing. Okay, so we're going to get to that in just a second. But let's look at this scene. Let's look at this scene of worship. First of all, the worship of the multitude. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Well, what is that, what is that group composed of? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, standing clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The multitude is a multi-ethnic group. The white robes pictures Probably two things from the text. Purity. These are those who have what? Washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But there's also a picture of victory. And that will be highlighted by the next thing, the palm branches. Because in addition to the white robes, they hold palm branches, which is a sign of rejoicing at festive occasions. Which chapter 7 is. This is a festive occasion. Matter of fact, when, when's the other time you saw them when Jesus was uh, present that they were waving palm branches? We call it, what do we typically call it? 
the, the triumphal entry, right? The not so triumphal entry when all is considered. But why were they waving palm branches? Why were the same people like sort of in this festive occasion doing this and then later saying crucify him? Because they thought this Jesus Messiah was the Messiah, but they had very worldly mindedness about who he was. And he was the king that was going to overthrow Rome. That's why he was coming into Jerusalem. We saw glimpses of this up in Galilee, but now he's come south and he's going to come in and conquer Rome. Woo! And they start quoting scripture, right? The psalm, a psalm, and they're, they're welcoming him. A festive occasion. Revelation 7 does picture victory. We'll see this by the next point, what they are crying in praise. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, I can hear echoes of Jonah's confession. This, this sort of angry, disgruntled Hebrew prophet who finally says salvation is of the Lord. From a book where God extends mercy to the Gentile nation of Assyria, a nation whom, whom Jonah didn't think deserved mercy, and they received mercy, salvation is of the Lord. Victory is seen in two other places where this sort of song is said. Turn with me to Revelation 12, verse 10. Is this picture of this multitude that no one can number. They're in white robes, purity because they've washed their robes, and victory, white robes, and palm branches. Look at Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? Look at the next verse or the next phrase. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What's the context? Victory over the accuser of the brethren. Look at chapter 19. Go forward to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! What does hallelujah mean? Because we sing this a lot, right? It means praise God. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Same sort of chorus that they're singing. Why? Why are they singing this? Look at the next phrase. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So, hallelujah. Salvation belongs to our God. The context? Victory? Go back to Revelation chapter 7. Because when we realize that the God of all the earth will do what is right, even though it seems like he's not right now, then we will sing salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that is our cry right now as God's people. As the people of God, in union with Jesus Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection, we can cry this. Listen to a similar chorus that I'll read out of 1 Corinthians 15. 
The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But see, it's not just praise. It's actually a worship through work. Listen to the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, 56 to 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is what Paul is telling the Galatians. Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't faint. So we've seen the worship of the multitude, but there is also the worship of angelic beings. Look at verse 11. This is the worship of a celestial host and all the angels. Now, we've seen snapshots of this before in Revelation 4 and 5, where there were angels, but this is the first time where all of the angels are gathered. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This scene really does call us back to Revelation 4 and 5. But now we see all the angels on the outermost circle. And what is, their, what is their physical response? Remember what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, that angels long to look into this salvation of ours. Remember what Hebrews said, that the Messiah wasn't sent to save angels, but he came to, he came to save his brothers. So he had to be made like unto them. That's why he took on flesh. That's the beauty and the glory of the Incarnation. He came to save us, not the angelic host. But these angels are around, and when they see the fulfillment of this salvation that they have longed to look into, what is their physical response? I, I would do that for shock and awe right now, but I, I'm afraid I couldn't get up very quick. They fell on their faces. Angels. Incredible beings. And then what do they say? It's a sevenfold praise. Bookended by two amens, which means truly. Truly blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Why such an eruption of praise from the angelic beings? Because they are seeing the fulfillment of the very reason God sent His Son to the earth to save you and to save me. And it didn't make sense sometimes along the way, just like it doesn't make sense to us here, but now to see His plan realized, come to fruition, they erupt in praise. Here's what is mind-blowing to me. God knew how He was going to save us before the foundations of the earth. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't see that coming in the Garden of Eden. Oops, I better create a plan. No, let me read to you three verses to tell you that this was the plan all along. And that's what the angels realize and they erupt in this sevenfold praise. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus is teaching, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, the Apostle Paul says, even as He chose us 
in him when? Before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19-21, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He was revealed in the last times for the sake of, I love this, for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, God's wisdom is revealed in His works. And He will receive praise from all people and all angels for it. Now let's look at verse 13. As we're going to move from that group to a question, the text moves us to the identity of the human multitude. Now, up to this point, think about this. Revelation 1 to 7, verse 13. Would you have loved to have asked questions to the interpreting elder? I have a lot of questions about chapters 1 through 7, especially about chapters 4 through 7. A lot of, John doesn't ask any questions. So the angel sort of forms a question for John and for us. It's very interesting. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? See, and I would have said, can you explain to me those four beasts? Because those are really awesome. And what do they do? And where, right? That, so that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen here. It's not allowed to happen, I don't think. So the question is, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Really, it's two questions. And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Do you realize what that question does? That question highlights one of the big ideas you're not supposed to miss in this interlude. You can, get, you can get sidetracked and into arguments about all the other little pieces, but now the elder in heaven is going to highlight something via a question. So don't miss it. Here's the question. Who are these? And where have they come from? Both questions focus on a particular aspect of this entire scene. Who are these people in heaven and how did they get here? Do you have the answer to that? Can you answer that question? Because when you see this scene, you're supposed to marvel. I mean, you see this number, this specific number, 144,000, and they're sealed, and they're, and they're there, and they're at least part of this second group. If they're different, they're at least part of this. And then you have this number that... You have this multitude that can't be numbered, and they're there worshiping in joy in the presence of God without any fear. And the elder says, do you know who they are and where they, how they got here? That's a huge question. Sir, you know. And the, images focus, the image focuses on purity. It's often been said, nothing can get into heaven that is not as righteous as Jesus Christ. That's why your good works will not get you to heaven. Because your good works, your morality, 
your hard work, your treadmill of performance is not as righteous as Jesus Christ. Who are these and how did they get here? Well, let's look at the answer. Sir, you know, and he said to me, because this is the only way you get there. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in something. In what? In the blood of the Lamb. Note the seeming contradiction. Washing one's robes white in red blood. That's like victory through death. Right? Or success through martyrdom. You've got all these ideas crashing in. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We can answer it this way. They are there by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And that's why the song, Salvation to Our God. Let me just read to you, because because blood can be offensive to people. If that's the only way for you to stand before God, who will stand? These people will. Let me just read to you four verses, five verses. You know, it's never less, right? I always add one, don't I? Revelation, or Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified, we've been legally declared righteous by His blood. Well, why is that blood so important? We will be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The very thing they're crying out at the end of chapter 6. Colossians 1, 19-20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace, listen, peace with God, how? By the blood of His cross. Hebrews 9, 12. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In 1 John 1.7, John, the same one receiving this vision, says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Who are these and how did they get there? Now, these are the ones particularly coming out of the Great Tribulation, but they are saved the same way we are who are part of a vast multitude. Notice what these passages offer through the sacrifice of Christ. Reconciliation with God. Peace with God. Security of eternal redemption. No more trying. No more um, working. Purification, forgiveness, and cleansing. And the results of those things, the results of perseverance and purity, look at verse 15. Therefore. Who are these and how did they get there? Okay, the answer, therefore they are where? Verse 15, where are they? Where are they? They got somewhere, where are they? Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God I want our young people to notice this next verse especially. And serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. The reason I highlight that is that might be an underwhelming picture to some of our young people. If you interpret this simply through, that sounds like church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the problem with that interpretation is not because the church is not glorious and it's not God's divine plan, 
But this church and every other church is still filled with believing people who sin, who are divisive, who are argumentative, who are jealous, who complain and grumble and gossip. I don't even want to live in that for a day, let alone eternity. And sometimes we don't sing songs that are your preference. Why would I want to do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week? They're so old. That's so progressive, right? Who wants to live like that forever? So even though the church is glorious, you have to taste something even better here of the presence of God. See, this is going to be underwhelming to the people who have never sensed the absolute joy and delight and the peace that passes all understanding about sitting in the presence of God. When you realize that, if you've ever tasted that, if you've ever sat there and experienced that, to have that forever, yes, absolutely. Let me, let me explain it this way. Interpret this through the lens of an enjoyment higher and better than one you've ever experienced. I remember the first time as a little boy, I was on the monorail, and, we were, and I was going into Orlando Disney World for the very first time. And I remember that thing taking us right through, in, through it, like right inside this hotel. This was in the 70s. And I was like, oh, you know, you could, you're like a slice, and you see everybody eating, drinking, and going into their rooms, and then you come out on the other side, and it's green, and there's rides you want to be on, and there's these larger-than-life characters. <gasps> that was awesome. Probably not going to hear many pastors say Disney's awesome, but you know, as a little kid, that was overwhelming. Do you know heaven is better than that experience? Because there's the removal of all suffering. Well, we've suffered this week. Even us in comfort, middle-class suburbia have suffered this week. We've suffered in our minds. We've, we've suffered emotionally. Some of us have suffered physically. We've suffered even spiritually because of the choices we've made. But they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. John is recalling several passages out of Isaiah where God already promised in the time of Israel's restoration His people would no longer hunger or thirst, nor would heat or the sun beat down on them. Explicit references from Isaiah. And then look at the actions of the Lamb and God on our behalf. Look at verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. This is one shepherd who will never fail you. One shepherd who has never sinned nor will ever sin. He will be our shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God is the one with compassion on His people, will guide them and lead them beside springs of water and He will wipe away our tears. It will be an emotional restoration. So what does God want us to believe and desire and obey from this passage? Quickly in conclusion. God is sovereignly delaying judgment. In chapter 7, you've got these four angels and God is sovereignly delaying judgment. And what this means is that unbelievers still have time to repent and believe. That's what Jesus said to do in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. You still have time to repent and believe and believers still have great commission work to do. So believe. 
and go make disciples. God's delays are gracious. What this means is that we should pray together and we should pray often. This is what Paul entreated Timothy, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, pray. You think because of our peace and the comfort we enjoy, we would pray the most often, but the exact opposite is true, isn't it? It's persecuted people who pray. So this is something we should respond to out of this text. God's delays are gracious. Therefore, make disciples and pray. Another idea here is the redeemed of the earth will reach God's intended destination. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. Look, let that sink in. Your, the end of your journey is safe if you are in Christ. Therefore, the paralyzing fear you can turn away from. The jealousy, you can turn away from. It's not about who's better, who's more known. You can stop fretting, stop trying to earn the favor. It's not about your busyness. Your destiny is not any more sure because you're super busy. It's set and secure. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Believe this. Think deeply on that. Sing about that. God will preserve those sealed through judgment and tribulation. And here, really, because these are those that come out of the great tribulation, do you know God can preserve you and protect you through even a great tribulation? What this means is that God will sustain you either through empowering you to persevere or empowering you to face death. Those are the two paths of victory. Martyrdom or perseverance. Jesus said, and I'll close with this passage, I tell you, I just, I don't know what his voice sounded like, but I believe it was gentle. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Let's pray.